Thank you all very much for coming. We want to start, really, by expressing our gratitude to a lot of people, mainly Kelly. I think it's absolutely, it's, for me, it's incredibly moving and significant that we will have the honor of hearing about psychotherapy, not through the therapist's prose in a book, but for you to have the courage to come and speak yourself. The point of psychotherapy, in many ways, is, as Shakespeare said, to give sorrow words. It's important to hear the words of the forensic patient, not through the lens or the thesaurus of the therapist, but directly and humbly in their presence. So you're making a, I'm going to put pressure on you. Um, it's a huge, it's a huge um, a gift, and I really appreciate it. Thank you to Freud. Um, I, I think that Freud would be very disappointed to see how little use society and politics have made of his insights. I personally find it, well actually, it pisses me right off. <laughs> because it's all there, and it's so vital, and it's so strong, and the emphasis on relationships is so topical, and I just, I just really hope to sort of enthuse you or something or make you mad or just, you know, let's just get in and think about it because there is, I think that, well, I think that my experience and Kelly's experience, although very different, makes us believe that psychoanalysis, psychotherapist has a lot to offer more than um, people at NW3, for example. This is also in memory of uh, my supervisor, Jill McGauley, who supervised me at Holloway and at Bronzefield. I had the, the honor of having a very interesting training at the Anna Freud Center about mentalization. I won't get too technical here about a shift in psychoanalytic technique, but the shift from the transference to mentalization is absolutely key for the forensic patient because I don't know about you, but I think that endless transference interpretations can make you go a bit mad. <laughs> and this is something that was, I'm very grateful to um, Peter Fonagy and, and co. Because it's tremendously important. You know, there is, it is very important for people to be able to express themselves. But you do have to, you know, create a space where the, the, the words can flow. And so, you know, this endless banging on about symbolic interpretation, you know, that people often aren't ready for it, and some people are never ready for it. So this subtle shift in psychoanalytic technique, I think, has been incredibly helpful, and I'm very grateful to have had that training. And I'm also very grateful to Estella Weldon, and her, oh, <laughs> perfect timing. Thank you, thank you, wonderful to see you. I'm very, very grateful to Estella Weldon's groundbreaking and passionate book about Mother Madonna Hoare. The role of the mother in child sexual abuse is enormous. It's not just men who abuse children. And I think Kelly will have an opportunity to talk about this a bit, but you talk about it to the extent to which you want to talk about it. But together, we've, we've really thought about the role 
that women play in the sexual abuse of children. It's not just men. And it's, it's not, a, I don't think it's a, the gender thing we just need to kind of part. It's th something that adults do to children. So I'm really, thank you for coming, Estella. It really, really is important to have you here. So I'm not going to read this. I just <laughs> sort of don't want to forget to thank people. Um, but to begin with, um, before we start our conversation, hope to, you, to include you in it because this is meant to be a conversation, not just between us, but with you and your feelings, your understanding, how this is striking you, if it's making you angry. If, you know, we really will draw on that, and that'll be very helpful. But going back to the 19th century, um, from the beginning in psychoanalysis, child sexual abuse has haunted, haunted this profession. And it appears at different times in different ways. And it's very difficult um, sometimes to, to, to have, our, have our bearings with it theoretically. Um, but this is not a te technical um, or theoretical exploration for tonight. It's an attempt to think about the impact of child abuse and the origins or the outcome of that um, abuse which can move into offending behavior. I mean, I do hate offending, and I hate the word offender, but you know, we're a bit stuck with language sometimes. So uh, the statistics estimate that 65% of women offenders, I hate this word, have been victims of childhood sexual abuse, 65%. Of course, statistics tell a story, but people tell a better story. Just ask Stalin. Stalin said, one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. Well, Stalin ought to know um, about millions of dead people. So tonight is not through the usual perspective of the therapist's account of another person's experience. Kelly and I met in 2013, and together she will, and I will reflect on her experience of psychotherapy in prison, both as a patient with me, client, yeah. and also as a member of a 10-week mentalization-based group facilitated by Professor Jill Magali and myself. And that's where we really had the experience of the importance of mentalization as opposed to this more symbolic use of the transference. It was revolutionary to our work. It was incredibly helpful that the therapists can think about the transference stuff in their, in their own mind. But in, in the conversation with the patient, uh, we found mentalization very, very helpful. And then we will talk about what Kelly took, or she'll talk about, what she took from the group. And the most um, gratifying thing in a way when you've been a facilitator or a kind of teacher is when you have a student take away from the group. And Kelly has written a stunningly effective 10-week group for forensic patients who were victims of child sexual abuse. It's absolutely amazing. That's the really good bit. We have been trying for five years to get the prison to let us run it. Every time we get there, something goes wrong. Now, that's for a different conversation. That's about some institutional 
I don't know what. But this is just the, the context in which we'll have our conversation, and we hope you'll join in when, when, um, you know, when we come towards the end of that. So Kelly wrote a program which we have called, what's it called? Kelly Group. The Kelly Group. And we called it the Kelly Group because you wrote it, but also it's a lovely name, and also lots of women in prison are called Kelly. So we thought it would have a meaning, you know. <laughs> we don't have to put your last name in it. We don't have to call it, you know, Unicorn Group or New Dawn or, you know, the recovery program or it's going to be really easy, just smile. We don't have to call it any of that stuff. We just have to honor one individual's horrible experience which you've turned into something really powerful and very practical. And it would seem almost impossible to get off the ground. But we're not done yet, are we? No, we don't give up. That's it. OK, so I think um, we'll discuss the failed attempts. And we want to make it clear that it seems that Freud was not the only person who struggled with sex childhood sexual abuse. It's a really horrible and difficult topic. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to get any traction in prison with it. So mothers, forensic psychotherapy is indebted to the groundbreaking work of Dr. Estella Weldon. And it inspires us so much in our daily, daily um, work. And again, just to re-illustrate, it's not just men who sexually abuse children. And I think that if we bear this in mind, um, that it's, it's, it's not a fantasy what's happened, and it's not just the men in raincoats that do it. When I was working um, in Wandsworth Prison, the number of white-collar executives who were in for child internet crime and their absolute contempt and hatred of the female adult therapist was, you know, quite nauseating, actually. It's really complicated. We're not going to go there tonight. We can talk about it another time. But um, just to, to reiterate our plan, um, we're going to talk, Kelly and I are going to talk together. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, for about 45 minutes or so, and then we can have a chance to have a conversation. <coughs> And the only thing I would really ask, because um, we're in a sort of community now, aren't we? We're in a community of, of people who are really questing after this topic. And we just like, if you want to ask a question, and we really welcome you to, please just say your name first. I just think it's so important when there are these meetings and people stand up and say something. And you think, God, that was really interesting. And then something about a name really kind of holds the meaning together. So if you wouldn't mind, you don't have to give your last name or divulge anything. But um, if, that would be, if that would be helpful to you, it, I mean, I think we'd really appreciate it. So now we're going to start the conversation. And I think that Kelly and I agreed that if stuff gets a bit too tricky or, you know, we don't want to, you know, it, you've got the right to say you don't want to say anything. Yeah. Okay, so I guess the place to start is we were talking earlier about your, how you got to prison that first night. Yes. Um, 
So I was remanded in court um, and was told by my solicitor I was going to prison, possibly Bronzefield, but he had no idea. Mm -hmm. um, I had to wait for a van to come and pick me up and I was put in a box and driven to Bronzefield. I had no idea where I was going. Um, what, did the what did the van look like? It's a white van. Um, and you have little seats in there and you're locked in um, in a really tiny space. Um, so you have no air coming through. You cannot move at all. Um, and it's a really uncomfortable when you're sat there for nearly two hours. At night? At night, yes. Okay, so you're in the van going to you don't know where. <coughs> yeah. The children are not with you. Mm -hmm. And then when you get to Bronzefield, which is near Heathrow, so when you're driving near Heathrow, you'll be able to know you've got a large woman pris woman's prison in your neighborhood. So yeah. you get to Bronzefield about what time? It must have been around 10, 10 p.m. Mm -hmm. And what happened then? Um, so I was taken in by the guards, officers, sorry, mm -hmm. um, took my name and my details. I was given a prison ID card, I was given a prison ID number. I was then waiting in reception for roughly two hours um, while waiting to be sent to the house blocks. Mm -hmm. So did you have anything with you? No. I had seven, seven pounds, I had nothing. I wasn't prepared for going to prison and I had nothing on me. And I think that that's, that's quite a strong image, isn't it? Some woman being carried across the countryside in the night in a van. And how often we see those big white vans in, in town, don't we? Serco or... Mm -hmm. And there are people in those. They're so awful inside these vans that pregnant women aren't allowed to travel in them. I've never been in one yet. They do, they do have a space at the back. <coughs> if a, someone's got a medical reason they can't travel in the box, you can sit at the back tied to an officer. Um, so there is that option, but mm -hmm. it's rarely mm -hmm. used. Yeah. This is how we thought we'd have our <coughs> quiz. So who, who knows what country has more people in prison? European country has the most people in prison. That's right, exactly right. That's right. And do you, do you have a guess about how many women are in prison? It fluctuates. I think the highest it's ever been is five. But it's much lower. Women offend differently from men. But do you know how many children are affected by their mother's imprisonment? 18,000 minimum, minimum, those are the ones that are reported, 18,000 children. And do you know what the greatest indicator of going to prison is? Child being left alone. Close. Yeah. Having a parent go to prison. So you've got this replenishing cycle of potential people in prison. Yeah. So these are things that we're trying to present a sort of context for. This is the, this Britain has the highest 
prison population of any country in Europe. The prison population is, in Holland has been reduced to such a degree that they now rent out prison places to other countries. So I hope that also adds to the context of prison is big business. Prison makes money. Those white bands make money. So with your seven pounds, speaking of money, what, what were you able to do with that, Kelly? Uh, so I had to wait a few days for it to actually go on to my account. Mm -hmm. um, I was given a pack once I got on the wing, mm -hmm. which had toothbrush and soap and stuff like that. So they do provide those sort of packs for you. That night? That night. Um, there wasn't really much I could use the seven pounds on, to be honest, because things can be quite expensive. Um, so mainly I just got a couple of snacks just to... Mm -hmm keep in my room because mm -hmm. you get three set meals a day and you don't have anything else so if you do get hungry you have nothing so <coughs> if you're hungry and your children are someplace else how do you access the phone when you're on does that take <coughs> a few days or can you ring straight away when you know because you, you have to put out of your money you then have to put money onto your card your phone mm -hmm. account um which doesn't go on straight away so you you can't make phone calls until you've got money put on your account and you have to phone mobiles often yes very expensive yes and the prison <coughs> makes a profit off the phone cards like they mm -hmm. make a profit off the food in the canteen <coughs> which i think most women feel the need to buy the food because it does make you feel like you're making some kind of choice spending your own money plus you're hungry so these are all just the subtle you know these are kind of the you know, were talking about the brick mother earlier but I mean these are kind of the bricks of the institution and then eventually you can you were referred to mental health in reach too. I was yes and do you know did you know what that process was I Can had, you remember? You know, it's a long time ago now. So the way I was referred was I had a psychiatric report done on me. And the copy was then sent to the prison um, to inform them that I was a very high risk of suicide. And it was then that I saw a doctor. I was put on something called an ACT book. Mm -hmm. um, and I started Do you want to say therapy. a bit about what the ACT book is? The ACT book is for people that mental health problems, self-harm problems, suicide problems. It means that an officer will walk you everywhere you need to go. <coughs> they will check on you every hour at night. Um, and wake you up. Uh, yes, sure and shine dead. a light through you in the middle of the night. Um, it also means when you're having a shower, if you need to use a razor, they will have to sit there and watch you. Um, which is not a very nice thing to happen. Um, you, you can get access to safe packs, um, but as I've said before, it's basically like colouring pages out of ch a children's colouring book. So it makes so you, you feel get really. That bit, the colouring. Do you want to say a bit about giving an adult a colouring book? Yeah, it's it's a children's colouring book, um, and you get given pages out of it. Um, 
it, to me, it made me just feel like being treated as a child. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't very nice. I don't think they really helped that much. Um, but a lot of people did access them. Mm -hmm. Because it is something, something to, do. to do. Yeah, that's right. And the ACT document, <coughs> this anti-suicide document, mm. is bright orange. And when you're being accompanied by the officer... They have to carry it around with them so everyone can see that you're on one. They are meant to be <coughs> in a, a disclosed yeah. Yeah, not, folder, yeah. like a restricted mm -hmm. prisoner. That's right. Often are not. Mm -hmm. in, the, in the years I was there, yeah. they weren't. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the irony, I mean, it's a little, it's sort of classic prison speech. It's called an act document, but really they don't want you to act. So they don't want you to do anything, but I've never really quite understood the AC. What does it stand for? Do you know? I can remember. Yeah. I'm a bit rusty. It's assessment, mm -hmm. care, casework, and treatment. Okay. Or teamwork. Teamwork. It used to be called the 2052SH, and they mm -hmm. changed the name from 2052SH because the SH meant self-harm. Okay. Okay, that's really helpful. Yeah. This is a great colleague from Holloway, which we'll, we'll talk about later. So it's great to have you here, Madeline. Thank you, thank you very much. Okay, so you you got you got going back to your access to mental health. So yeah. did you see the psychiatrist I at Bronzefield initially, or yes. what was the procedure? So I saw the psychiatrist, the doctor. Did you see Doctor Doctor Patel? Yeah, Doctor yeah. Patel. Yeah. Um, he put me back on my medication because I was on medication outside. When I come in, they didn't have any of my notes. So I mm -hmm. went without mm -hmm. my medication for a few weeks. Um, he put me back on my antidepressants. Mm -hmm. And I was also referred to see Catherine. Who oh, was, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, who was a psychologist. She was, yeah. yeah. forensic psychologist. And I had weekly therapy sessions with mm -hmm, her, mm -hmm. um, and then you when she left. Yeah. yeah. And this will put you on the spot now. You don't have to answer this. Okay. But, but just, just looking back to, what, 2013, when people said to you, you're, you're going to have psychotherapy, did you have a sort of thought in your head about what that might mean, or...? To be what honest, did it sound like to you? It was really scary. Um, I only spoke out about my own experiences when I went to prison and had a psychiatric report. So I'd kept everything in for nearly 15 years. Um, so then it was a bit of a rush having the psychiatric report to then start in therapy. I didn't know if I was ready to actually go deep inside and talk about everything. It was a really scary time for me. Did did it make you feel like like you were being labeled or you were crazy or because I mean when people say psychotherapy, I think each of us has our own sort of association to that term. And I wonder the bit I did feel labeled. Mm -hmm. um, I was diagnosed with my mental health problems in this report that was then sent to me for me to read in a prison cell with no explanation as to what these mental health problems were. Um, I had no knowledge of anything <coughs> apart from the depression. 
Um, so do you mean the words that you were using as diagnostic? Yes. What, can you remember any of them? Or so do you want to say? Emotionally unstable personality disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, depressive disorder, OCD, and low chronic self-esteem. Now, EUPD and PDSD I'd never heard of. Um, I didn't know what it was. So it was really hard being told those things and not knowing what it actually is and how it was affecting me myself, which was really difficult. And because being in prison, I didn't have access to the internet just to look it up. So again, even more. So are you saying that you were handed the report yes. and, then, and then what, told to go and read it on your own? I was just handed or? the report um, and that was it. I spoke to Catherine about mm -hmm. my diagnosis and she luckily was happy to give me an explanation of what they were. But the initial contact with the report was alone in, you yeah. read it the first time alone in your... In my cell, yeah. And w w was there another psychiatric report as well? Yes, there was another psychiatric report done and in that one um, they wrote that they could see me having a very bleak future and not really doing much. Hmm. So that might take a couple of minutes to... I don't want to just rush over that. And is that something you read by yourself? Yes. And that's when you just started psychotherapy as well? Yeah. Yeah. When, I, when, I, when she came into the meeting to view me, and she was... Is this the psychiatrist? The, the one that... It was the, the second one? The second one that mm -hmm. said I have a bleak future. Um, during the meeting, she said to me that she thought everything would come back okay. I didn't seem bad or anything like that. And then obviously she went away and wrote up her report and put that <coughs> as a prognosis, which wasn't very good to look at. Yeah. I'm so glad she was wrong. Yes. Yeah. So Catherine was very, very thoughtful and I think got the impression that you got a lot out of the therapy Definitely. with her. And then she had to go. Yes, she left. And that was when I always upsetting though. And it's something yes. that we're very aware working in a forensic setting, the way these very strong feelings, you know, develop obviously yes. in that kind of situation and how inevitably people have to come and go but my feeling was and that, that, that it was very carefully planned it ending was. she left a very good report that you yeah. got yeah very different from the psych two psychiatrist yes, reports definitely. and then you had test therapy with me <laughs> yes um, but in the process so that so just to let you know the procedure that there's a referral to mental health there is, yeah. There's a referral meeting, contact is made with services in the, you know, mental health, you know, more information is gathered. And then there's a discussion about someone's suitability for psychotherapy. So it's a multidisciplinary meeting where we, we discuss, you know, the possibility of, you know, would it be useful? It's clearly not useful for everybody. Sometimes other interventions are important first. Um, art therapy can be extremely powerful and useful and creative particularly, but not always. 
with um, with foreign nationals that don't have the language, you know, that you know, just coming in. So there's the the beauty of this, and one of the the great things, and I think we talk about it in the Holloway book, is that there's there's a, a group of professionals that meet and think together about what's suitable. Because the last thing you really want to do is make an offer of some kind of treatment that's going to be a total failure for the person that it's being offered to. You know, you need to make sure with the best possible, you're not 100%, but with the best possible thinking together, and the thinking together is absolutely essential, that the person's got a real chance at this. Because quite frankly, you know, you don't want to have something else go wrong, do no, you? No, so that's that's the um, that's part of it. I mean, that's maybe a little bit my feeling too much, but anyway. So you you've got this psychotherapist coming along. Yes. And then where where would you meet? So we met on the house block four in a comfy room that had some comfy chairs in it. Um, just so you could relax. And a glass window a on glass the door. A glass window, which wasn't the best because people would walk past and look in. Um, so there wasn't really any privacy at all. It's really important, and it's one of the things that, it, that you really, really have to fight for because there are a lot of different therapeutic sort of principles but I do think that the, the attention to the same time every week and the same room is absolutely vital. It, you've got so few things in a prison that can kind of give you an extra frame around the frame of the prison. And the third thing that's my particular bugbear is I think the room needs to be kept really clean and not to go in and use a room for therapy if the bin is overflowing and there are filthy cups around. I think that room is sacred. You want to keep it clean and show the respect. Yeah. And I, I just, I won't, I don't negotiate with that. And in, in Downview, there's a room within a room and there's, 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 there's no window. It's very, very difficult sometimes yeah. those rooms. And I think for people, who've been sexually abused as a child, to be left in a room with a stranger, no window and a door shut, that's hard, hard place to start, isn't it? And I think Donald Campbell writes beautifully about this, that sometimes when, when the intimacy of the therapy gets sort of too intimate, it can absolutely break down. So you need to have these things really in place so that the speed of the therapy isn't too fast. Is that how, I mean, is that, I think that's something that, that can be quite difficult in some of these programs where people kind of diving in it too is, deeply. It's also constant um, because everything does change in prison. Mm -hmm. um, again, you know, it wasn't very nice knowing that people walk past the door and look in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it also makes you question if someone can hear you on the other side. Um, so I always spoke quietly sometimes because I didn't know if other people were hearing me um, but it was that one constant thing that I had each week that I knew wouldn't be taken away and 
I think that starts to give a structure to the experience. It gives you a, a chance to, to feel that it can be sliced a bit more thinly. It doesn't have to be this, this big, huge, huge, yeah. incomprehensible mess, which mm. perhaps it can often feel even in you know, anybody's psychotherapy. And were the other, were your other prisoners, <coughs> did they ask you about it? Do you want some more water? Yeah, please. Madeline, my name. Thank you. Um, were you sentenced when you had therapy or you were still on remand? Remand. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, Yeah, the, it wasn't like that at Holloway. Um, the idea at Holloway was that people really needed to settle into it. Um, and I think that there, there, you know, it's something that we could discuss about whether, whether it, in Holloway the supervisor's view was that the remand was a time of such great anxiety you shouldn't have the therapy. A counter argument to that could be remand is such an anxious time, probably a good idea to have the therapy. The, the key thing that you can't do on remand is discuss the case. You have to, in that, you have to be very, very boundaried about that. Um, and it's, it can make it, it can make it technically quite difficult. Um, but I think with the mentalization approach, you've got more capacity to engage in that point, because it is, it is, it's not trying to keep the emotion. I mean, it's quite hard to explain, but it, it feels a more boundary way of way of looking at things. So I don't know how. Did you feel once you were sentenced, the therapy changed in any way from when you were on remand, or how? No, How did it feel to you? I don't think it changed. Um, personally, I feel that you know it was what I needed, and it was right in a psychiatric my psychiatric report that I needed two years of therapy, intense therapy, um, and I'm thankful I got the opportunity to get that in prison. Um, but no, I, I I think it was the same. And do you think that, um, I mean, I think we, we didn't really discuss, discuss the trial or the, no. the, I think the fear is that people will get in there and try to just kind of use it as a courtroom. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a very, it's very important to realize what a courtroom procedure, how that can impact on uh, forensic therapy because you do not want the person with whom you're working to feel that they're constantly being asked questions. You know, it's not an interrogation, and, it, and, and to try to ease away from that kind of structure, um, because, it, it, you know, it's, it's the opposite of an interrogation. It's, it's, it's curiosity. It's wanting to know the meaning of something rather than looking for blame. And the blame is a stop to the therapy. You're yeah. just constantly looking to, to blame people. And so I think in, in your particular case, where there, there, there was the abuse, yeah. um, to be able to try to think about it and understand it in a non-blaming way, and that was, that's hard, isn't that's it? That's very hard. Something like that. Very hard. Um, because I always blamed myself. Aha. Yeah. And even in a lot of my therapy sessions, I still put some blame of it on me. It took me a very long time to understand that it wasn't my fault, um, but that took me years to get to. 
And, and do you think, in a way, that the passage of time is an element enable, enabling you to get to that point? More that it needs, needs time to come to realize? It does, yeah. So somebody could say, well, it's not your fault. That might feel... And it's easier for other people to say that because it's mm -hmm. not them going through it and it's not them going through all the emotions of the blame and the anger um, and the shame as well. Um, so it's very easy for someone to say, well, it wasn't your fault, mm -hmm. but if you don't believe that yourself, then you're not going to listen. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really take root. No, perhaps. it doesn't. Yeah. No. So after you, you, you started therapy, we started working together, then you were referred to, to the Managing Emotions group yes. with Jill. Yeah. And do you want to say a bit about that? Um, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed doing the group so much I actually did it twice, um, which I didn't have to do. Um, but it enabled me to see, to manage relationships because before, I'd let people walk all over me. So just to make others happy, I would do what anyone wanted. Um, and I was a bit of a pushover, and people knew they could use that to their advantage. So it really helped on relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes there is a question about should someone have individual psychotherapy and do a group? Now, I don't, I don't know um, what you think, and I, was, I didn't really know in advance, but it seemed quite complimentary. It did. Did it to you? Yes. Um, me, personally, I always prefer one-on-one -on -one therapy, um, and I've always struggled in groups because I don't know people that are in the groups and there's some stuff that I don't want to say to a stranger, um, but I found it very relaxing doing the mentalisation, mm -hmm. managing emotions, um, and although maybe I didn't talk as much as I should, um, but that's why I come back the second time, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it really did help, and it's also helped me um, with groups, being in groups as well. That's a very strong thing, I think, in a prison, this pro-social pro aspect of a group and being with people who have similar experiences, yeah, so you don't feel so completely alone, which I think is one of the strongest feelings yeah. of, of, of child sexual abuse. It's, you're just this creature to whom something awful has yeah. happened. Yeah. So there was that. There was the fact that Jill McGauley was fabulously warm and inspiring woman. Yeah. And I think that the other part of the problem, though, with groups in prison is in in many in many group therapy setups, you have you you never meet with the people in the group who are in your group. But the problem is with in prison, you don't just meet with them. You can live next door, and so the issues of confidentiality about something is intensely personal as, se as child sexual yeah. abuse. You know, it, there are lots of layers of complexity yes. here. And although it's very clear in a group that you do about confidentiality, um, you still don't know 100% what you're saying to other people is then going to be spoken about on the prison wing, mm -hmm. um, because you can't 100% guarantee that. So I do think it stops people from 
opening up so mm -hmm. much. Because in prison, information is power. It is. Yeah, and it's very, very difficult if somebody in any, in any group has been very badly abused to have the honesty and the integrity of what they've said in the group abuse like that is, is really, really difficult and it's something the, the facilitators of the group really have to, to monitor and it's, it's very, very difficult not to feel that this is just going to be another, yes. another form of abuse and really bad therapy is a form of abuse and really bad therapy in prison where people are afraid to walk out because it's on their sentence plan. Mm. There, there needs to be a real awareness yes. and trust that has to build up or you really won't get anywhere. And why should anybody tell you something if they don't trust you? So mm. it, takes, it takes working together. And I think that in many ways, and perhaps to you a surprising way, the prison, and I think Madeline will know this from Holloway, the prison can be very supportive of the therapy because as you leave as a therapist, knowing you're not going to see the person with whom you're working with for another week, really good officers you can, you can hand over to and you can say, she's a bit upset today, you don't say why, but you, you can build up a, a good working relationship with the officers, which is incredibly important that you cannot work in isolation. You've got this institution around you which you can use to support your patient when you're not there. And I think that if people have a kind of high and prissy attitude about, oh, I'm the psychotherapist, aren't you lucky to have me? Forget it. Go home. You've got to work as a team. You have got to have the, have the humility to say you're just a piece of this mosaic and if there's no respect given, you won't get any back. So I think you just have to get on with it and talk to people and learn their names and yeah. just learn the ones you can talk to and that, we, that you can trust. Because a week's a long time in prison. What time roughly did you used to get locked in? Um, so on the weekends it was usually about half five, I think. Yeah. Until? Um, until half seven, half seven yeah, <laughs> it's been a while, <laughs> um, yeah, straight up for meds, um, and during the week, um, it was a bit later, so it's about half. Depending on staffing, depend on association, association is in the evening after the early dinner is served about half four or five, yeah. there's certain wings, if they've got enough staff, will let the residents out for a couple of hours to make phone calls, socialise and have showers. But if there's an event happening within the prison, that will all get pulled away and everyone will get locked behind their doors because the staff are responding to emergency situations. So it's very chaotic and it's very, very unsettling. I, I remember mm -hmm. just quickly um, on Hasp Block 4, some people got um, chicken pox and we were basically quarantined and we weren't allowed off, even off the block, for a whole two days. And House Block 4 is the nicest block. It is, yeah. Yes, it is. So if you've had a really bad therapy session at 2, and you're going to be locked in until the next morning at 4.30 or 5, 
you want to make sure that the officers know to keep an eye. Yes. Because I, just speaking for myself, I think that, I mean, I hate closed doors. And when those doors close and you're all alone on a winter's night and it's pitch black outside, that is so dangerous and so horrible to think about that you're left on your own for more than 12 hours. Can I just mention that Please. every cell in Bronzeville, because it's a modern prison, has an intercom system yes. where the people that are in mm -hmm. each cell compress and yeah. it flashes in the main hub and the officer, if they haven't got time to come and physically answer that mm -hmm. bell, they can talk directly yes. to yes. the resident behind the door. That is an improvement, however, it hasn't kept women from giving birth in cells. Or dying. Or dying. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's, this is, you know, part of the strands that we're trying to give you a picture of is, is the complexity of the mm -hmm. institution and how people get really sick of those bells. Oh, she's playing me up. Oh, here she goes again. And so it's, it's, um, it's a very, very difficult, difficult setup. The, to say the least, but it's particularly after these sessions, it's very important to uh, have good communication with the, with the prison. So, just going back, because I'm, I'm aware of the time, and I want, to, I want you guys to talk to us too, please. Um, so, as do you remember that day walking when I was taking you back to House Block Four, and you said? after the mentalizing group, somebody ought to write a group about women who've been victims of sexual abuse. Do you remember saying I that? Do, and yes. then what happened? Um, quite shockingly, you asked me to write down my ideas. I said, why don't you do it? Mm. Which I'm I wasn't a, expecting. I'm a <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you do it, yes, Kelly? Yes. And guess what you did? And I did it. I wrote a 10-week group based on my own experiences, did each group individually, tasks in there, stuff that I've thought of myself to be given out to women, um, really a lot of thought went into it and I wrote it in my prison cell at night. Yeah, it's a magnificent piece of work and it's, it's rigor is what makes it hopeful because it is not about just going over it, going over it, going over it. It's about going forward step by step over time. And our idea was, which we presented to at Bronzefield, yes, we did. was we always hear about experts by experience. Why don't you let us run this group? And uh, Professor McGauley was still alive at the time. She could have supervised it for us. Yeah. And what did you do? So remember that big meeting that we had? Uh, come to Brunsfield. Um, I must say. You I came think, back? It felt very weird coming back, um, not as a prisoner, and talking to the officers and them offering me a cup of coffee and stuff. Um, and we're pleased to see you. And we're really pleased yeah. to see and we're really happy that it was something, you know, I kept on it um, because they knew I'd wrote it. Um, but it was amazing going back there. 
And we invited probation. We did, And yeah. we invited the person who's interested in sex workers or sexual abuse. We sat in a big circle. And we did. And everybody loved it. Terrific. Full steam ahead. And then very, very tragically, Jill died. Yeah. We said we couldn't do it without a supervisor. Completely acceptable. So we thought, hmm. What are we going to do now? <laughs> what are we going to do now? What are we going to do now? So Holloway shut, and that was a big, very big and unrecovered from experience, I think. Separate story. And then when I got, um, when I got to Downview Prison, where the, most of the women from Holloway were, to use the prison terminology, decanted like fine wine. They were moved from Holloway to Downview, which is in Sutton, which is after Clapham, after Ballum, after, it's just miles away. And this has massive implications for these 17, 18,000 children who want to visit their mothers, who were desperate to know, where is my mother? Is she really working away? Or some rubbish that they get told. Um, so when we got to down, when I got to Downview, I said to Kelly, "Well, we'll, we'll try again. We'll try again. We're not giving up on this. It's so relevant, 65 percent. How can you how can you argue with that?" So mental health were delighted. We Are got the okay. We had the meeting with probation. Yeah. With I'd even got as far as being cleared by security to go in and work and actually sending off my own ID to work in the prison. But back up a bit. You you ran that whole meeting. Do you remember? I did, yes. With mental health, I with did. probation. Yeah. And the first thing to go in for your pass got rejected. Rejected. So, um, oh God. Because they said I'd been in prison before. <laughs> that <laughs> was the whole point. Yes. Um, <laughs> So yeah, that was a bit of a back step. So we went back. <laughs> we went back and, and we done started again. again. And then we were ready to go and we did the worst thing I could possibly do. And this was awful. We were given names of women to go and assess and tell them about the group. And one woman in particular really touched us and she just did. opened up. Yeah. Remember? Yes, I do, yeah. And just when it was all about to get going, the prison said, you need to get this checked through by psychology. This, you, you, know, you have to get in the, in psychology thought because there's prison mental health in-reach team and there's prison psychology. Oh, oh. Oh, we don't have any women that this would apply to. And, you know, I mean, it, yeah. all, this could almost be funny, except it really isn't. Because it's just like going back into the sea. You get knocked back, you go back again. So anyway, I had to go and tell this, this young woman. Um, we'll just call her Kathy. Um, I went to say, look, I'm really sorry. This has been knocked back. And she had the dignity 
to say, I, I really understand, I'm really disappointed, but I'm so glad to see you today because this is my 10-year-old's birthday and I haven't seen him since he was five days old. Now, to have the dignity at a time like that to be able to think about the other person, I thought, and I didn't think it was in a kind of cringy way, but I just thought, I, you know, we will not give up. Whether we have to do this, I don't know. We're going to figure it out. But this is so important. I, th I don't know if you want to go into how you feel the long-term effects on you have been. The struggle of sleep and, you know, the difficulties. You know, these traumas come back. You know, the flashbacks. This is, this is not just personal to you, but it's a, it's a well-recognized difficulty. And there's a massive, massive number of people, women, and I'm sure this is true of men. I met, I work with a, a very um, challenging uh, man in, in Wandsworth who'd committed a very, very tragic um, offense with a young child who'd had a similar experience. This applies to men too, and it is not being addressed. We see it in the press all the time. You even see it in mental health in-reach team meetings where people say, victim of childhood abuse, like, oh, it's raining outside. It's so prevalent. We must not give up. This is the center to so much of the learning difficulties, of the problems that people encounter early in childhood, even when it's addressed, even if you get sent to camps, it doesn't get dealt with. So where we are now is we've got some more ideas and we're not going to give up, but there's been something so interesting to us about what is it about prison as a representative of society that we get so close to being able to do it. And then it's... And then it's just gone. It's gone. It's like a candle that gets blown out. Yeah. You know, it's got this light and it's got this hope. So that's, that's where we are now. And I feel it's such an honor to hear from your own experience, again, from in your own words, because it's so important that, that the victims of this get a chance to be heard. That's the first step. And I cannot think of anybody that could be better at facilitating this group. The idea was that we would run it together. Obviously, I would take a, unlike this evening, I'm sorry, <laughs> um, right. you know, a really back, back step, and then we would have time for supervision at some point in the course of the week to process stuff. So I hope that um, some of this makes sense to you and that you can feel the urgency of it. And I'd just like you to, if there are things that you'd like to say, if you want anything is there anything else that you want to say? Um, obviously, I want to say a big thank you to you um, for giving me the opportunities to take it this far. If it wasn't for you working on the inside and trying your hardest to get it up and running, then it wouldn't have been possible. But are you sorry we've done it in a way? Do you feel it's damaged you? No, I don't. I think it's made me stronger because I was able to use my own personal experiences and develop it into something that could help loads of other people. Um, 
it's given something back to the world. Hmm. So I never, never regret it. Um, I'm really, really happy. You know, even even with the setbacks. Well, it's made yeah. us more determined. And so much for having a bleak future. Absolutely. <laughs> what a great way to end. Thank you very much, Kelly. Really, really great. Sorry, you may just want to take a breather. I know it's it's a, it's a difficult topic. It's a lot to take in. So, any, as my supervisor used to say, any thoughts or just reactions? Um, yeah. My name's Madeline Klein. I'm, just, no, I'm going to keep it very, very brief. I was um, an officer at Holloway Prison for 10 years, working very closely with Pamela um, on acute psychiatrics, detox, post-detox, methadone unit, receptions, residential. And I can honestly say um, I've left there and I've worked in drug and alcohol fields and in Bronzefield last year and Downview as a senior. And I can honestly say from the day I started in 2003, the frustrations of residents coming in through receptions, yeah. like you did, yeah. is the nemesis of more trauma. Mm -hmm. um, they're traumatised already from going to court and being separated. They're traumatised because they're behind the doors. They're traumatised because it takes two weeks for the medication to be approved and re-prescribed. And the trauma I witnessed, on top of self-harm, were people's daily struggle to get good counselling and therapy quickly when they came into custody. If someone's child in the community had died or a family member, it was six to eight weeks wait to be referred and seen, which increased the self-harm, increased the low self-esteem, and had a knock-on effect, of course, on their mental health, physical health, but it had an effect on the staff, and it had an effect on all the other residents within the um, system, as it's called. Um, you're very lucky to have found yeah. Pamela, like I was. Yes. We worked very closely together for many years. And I can say prison does do very, very good work. But it's all to do with the client, the workers, and like Pamela said, the communication with the wing staff, the managers and the suicide and self-harm department and the psych psychologists and psychiatrists. If you haven't got that round-robin connection, you might as well not engage because you'll do much more harm yeah. than good. Get to know your staff, get to know where the client goes when she's not in your classes or in your sessions and get the bigger picture. And every time you see a client within the prison walls and they come with an ACT document, make sure you write something in it about the session. Because if that client was to go in the future and kill themselves and go to coroner's court, you not writing in that book is part of the um, class that's neglect. So I'm going to be here for a while. I don't want to go on and on and on, but I think you're very resilient. Thank you me. should be very, very proud of yourself. And your story is not over. Thank you. Yeah? yeah thank you. Um, hi, I'm Layla. Um, it's nice to meet you both. And um, uh, I was finding it really hard to keep it together, <laughs> to be honest. Um, 
Yeah, so I wanted to ask about what your plans are for for the future for this service, um, and especially for you, what what you plan to do with your life, and also with this, and what your hopes are. I'm hoping to be able to run the group and as take it as far as I can. Um, it isn't just prisons, you know. There are a lot of mental health institutions and. There is nothing like this at all, um, which I realised when I was in prison. So, ideally, I want to take it as far as I can. Um, but what I was struggling to understand was, I would have thought it would be a lack of funding or something, but what I understood was that two conflicting departments were saying that, oh, you don't need that. And so that's a little bit hard for... I Could you explain a little bit? I offered to run it for free. I offered to run the pilot for free. When they said no, I said, please let us run it for free. Just the pilot. Don't just shut the door in our face. Let us. There's something, I'm sure there are a lot of things, I'm sure it's more than one thing, but there's something about child sexual abuse. He couldn't, he couldn't, you know, it, it was, it, it's very, very shattering when you're really listening to what it means, when you're really thinking about that child in the room at night, when you're really, really thinking about that. My feeling is people drop the ball and run like hell. They pay, this has happened so often now that we get so close that we had all this backing from Professor McGauley, from the, the psychiatrist at Bronzefield. Great idea. You know, I thought our problem was to be kind of to keep it low key. I couldn't have been more wrong. So there is something, and we see it in the press. We see this demonization of, um, you know, quite often the perpetrators. You know what? You think when they were little kids, they ticked the box. I want to be a pedophile when I grow up. You know, where do you think this comes from? Out of the blue? But stand up. Stand up and tell us your name. Let me stand up. I'll tell you my name. Monique, thank you both very much. Um, Kelly, I have a question for you. Okay. Um, it kind of comes from... Um, before we start, you started to talk, Pamela, you mentioned that if someone doesn't show for a session, you can kind of go and find them in a, in a non-intrusive way. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder, Kelly, what it was like you got handed all of these, like, diagnoses and then were told that you needed to go for therapy. Did you feel like you had a choice in the matter? Not really, because it was right in my psychiatric mm -hmm. report that I needed two years of intense therapy um, in order to get everything out, so... Although I know I needed it, mm. um, I didn't really have a choice in it. And did that affect the way that you worked with the psychologist and then Pamela? Maybe at first, um, but after time I was able to open up more and I found it very comforting to me that finally there was someone I could talk to. Can I cheat and ask one more question? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> did you continue therapy after you left prison? No. Okay. Um, therapy through the mental health teams where I live. Okay. So different. That's a really good question because over and over, because I run um, groups for pregnant women and mothers of babies in prison, and the constant refrain is, 
isn't it weird we have to go to prison to get this kind of psychiatric, psychological intervention? And it's, you know, particularly with the homeless people that, that you deal with, that this is an absolute disaster. That this is the only time, this is crisis management. You know, this is, this is prevention is better than cure. And, if, and, the, and the difficulty is that, if, that women who are in Mentu who are in prison, if there been an intervention earlier, they wouldn't be in prison. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're, you're loading it all at the end. You're doing major surgery when a bit of work before joined up and in the community. You know, mm -hmm. often when women are pregnant and the domestic violence starts, you know, it, earlier down the line, there might have been something. You'd wait forever to get weekly psychotherapy, yes. wouldn't you, now in the community? Even, even since being outside, it's been a real struggle. Mm -hmm. um, I had to refer myself, because I went through domestic violence as well. Um, I had to refer myself to a place that actually gave out 10 three sessions of therapy. Um, when I went to my doctors about my mental health to get referred, my doctors didn't even know about my diagnosis because they hadn't even read them. Mm -hmm. So it is very hard trying to continue therapy. It's like starting all over from the beginning again. And I think it was a real <coughs> tribute to Catherine, your first therapist, that prepared the ground so well. Because the loss of a therapist, is we know that's a major thing. and. And to be able to work in a team where that was recognized, you were prepared, yeah. there was a handover, there was a team that held your experience in mind. You know, it really, really worked well because there could have been a very adverse therapeutic reaction going from a really, really good therapist to somebody new. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a real tribute to her. Yes, so, definitely. Okay. Yes. Very good. Very good woman. because I have been focused on prisons um, because there is nothing like it in prisons. So. How about in a community where women go that have been to prison previously? Yes, that is something. We, don't, we're, we almost don't want to jinx it. Yeah. We've got this plan. <laughs> yeah, I have yeah. a dream. <laughs> Look what happened before. <laughs> We've been talking about that. Yeah. We spend a lot of time in touch with each other. Yeah. Because, it, you know, in a very boundaried way, but it, it's really, really important. I, my biggest fear was, you know, I didn't want to bring Kelly here like a sort of an exhibit. Um, that, that it's really important that there's ongoing work between us. And I think there's a kind of, you know, we've got this common, common vision now. Yes. But very much for Kelly to do it. And I think that, that that's really the, where we're heading now with something in the community post-incarceration. But we've, pro we've had the problem with individual psychotherapy in Holloway um, is that sometimes when it's through the gate therapy, the women get kind of lost in the community. 
And this is something that's really, really difficult because I mean, this is, again, as you were saying, this is something about the, the institution holding the woman for us. And when we do go to say, oh, you missed your therapy or what's wrong, or, you know, we can find them. They don't need bus fare to come to the, to, the, to the group or the therapy. They don't need child care. You know, they're there. We can get them. And that's the absolute prize of forensic psychotherapy. And you don't do it like this is, you know, I'm now going to punish you for not coming to your session. The idea of psychotherapy is that your m actions have meaning. That's what we're trying to understand. So there's a sort of compassion for this. He tried in the other prisons, like East Sutton Park, Lower Newton, uh, Peterborough. Have you tried to approach, not Bronzefield, but the other female estates? No, and I don't know if I could bear to go through this particular process again, okay. like this. Right. Stella? Okay. Yeah. Uh, first, thank you very much, because that's been such a wonderful, really very straightforward, very honest, and very unusual, too. So it's an act of enormous amount of you know, courage and, uh, and freedom of speech. I mean, it's, it's great. Now, I want to, I w because I, you reminded me so much of my own experience about trying to have group therapy. Mm. Of course, I have been from early on in the 60s at the Henderson, which was the first therapeutic community with all sorts of offenders or antisocial conduct, whatever. At the, at the, when I came to the port, my clinic, I worked there for 30 years, and uh, I remember bringing them in the staff meeting the idea about having groups. My senior colleagues, they were completely up in arms. And one of them said to me, are you crazy or what? I mean, you are playing with dynamite. And that's when I got the title for my latest book. Yeah. Because, I said, what do you mean? Well, you cannot put all this, if only one of them was. But also, the group analytic society was against two, man, you, on the same grounds. So I said, but if these people are so antisocial, what they need is a group. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the only way we can deal. Mm -hmm. And then, years after, a few years, I said, they want to have a group with both victims and mm. perpetrators. Wow, that was another one. So I can, <laughs> again, once more, very delinquent myself. So I just take patients, used to be a long waiting list, I just put them there, and that's it. But it's an enormous, enormous situation about that how can they look one another and how, how can they understand so well what they are, they are doing, the victims and the perpetrators. I mean, it is a, such a rich situation of exchange that they are able now to talk to one another. I mean, and it's amazing that, for example, a guy who had been in an incestuous relationship with the daughter for many years, I mean, a new woman comes into the group who had had an incestuous relationship with her own father. This man just went to sit next to her. Said, you know, I think that you may be very, um, I'm sure you talk very slowly and I won't be able to hear you, so I have to sit next to you. So in other words, the approach was just there, the sort of almost the sensitive situation about getting together the incest perpetrator and the incest victim. I mean, it's so enormously rich to be able to deal with all these complexities in a group situation that 
it is really, I just find that why people are so scared about this, why everybody reacts in this way about these sort of patients, I think. I mean, but it's extraordinary because it's a, because you are offering fantastic, non non equal, nothing to do with. We I agree completely. I always say forensic psychotherapy is not the a sort of heroic act of one person. You have to be a group person. You yourself, you have to believe in the team. If you don't believe, if you want to work. The heroine, forget about that, no way, it's always the team process that is at work. And you have to trust everybody. You have to trust the professional officer, you have to trust the lawyer, you have to trust everybody, and you have to get to sort of getting to know and respecting and trusting the people who are all involved in this. But I mean, it's so, I mean, people sometimes just want to be the heroine or the hero heroes of this. You know, sort of, you know, these people who are whatever, whatever, wild, you know, and uh, <laughs> so it's, it's a very extraordinary situation which we have to be far more, I mean, down to earth, you know, that we need other people to, otherwise we cannot do this on our own, that's all. Thank you very much, Thank Stella. I think once. Yeah. Hi, my name is Brenda. Um, thank you for the conversation. I really enjoy it. Kelly, if I can ask you a question. You were talking earlier about um, you were reluctant to have group therapy. Did I, did I understand it well? You were a bit reluctant to have group therapy. You group prefer therapy, the one-to-one. Yeah. Yeah. Was it something that was that you had to do? Was imposed? Was part of the your the, the group therapy wasn't something I had to do. It was the one-on-one -on -one therapy I needed to do. Right. Um, but the group therapies were on different things. So, mentalisation, um, and there's a couple of groups outside that um, I've taken part in as well. Um, so no, that wasn't something I had to do but I did do it right. for myself. Yeah, you chose to. Yeah. Um, and I suppose I'm asking because uh, what motivates a person to go into group because initially there is a reluctance. I mean, sometimes as, as psychotherapists we think it would be would bring a lot of benefits to the person. I think it's to join. It's different for everyone. Mm. For me, I don't like talking in front of people in groups. Back back then, <laughs> back then, um, and I used to very find it very hard to open up to people. But then knowing that once I was reassured that I only need to speak if I want to, mm. I think that helped a lot. Mm. But I think everyone has different reasons for not wanting to do groups. Mm. But the confidentiality was yeah. something that yeah. for you was very, very yes. important. Mm -hmm. Yes, right. Thank you. That's okay. Thank you, both of you. Um, I don't know what mentalization is because I'm sort of more of a lay person. Could you uh -huh. explain well, it a little? That's a really good question. Very briefly, it has to do with a lot of neuroscience, which I don't really understand very well. But um, I think the idea of it is that you can't really do much investigation of your feelings or exploration is probably a better word 
if you're in a very heightened state. So some bit of your brain is all kind of hot and bothered. And, um, you know, so a transference interpretation might be something along the lines of, well, maybe you had this sort of experience with your mother. Well, oh my God. You know, that's probably not what the person really wants to think, you know, here comes mother dragged into this, what about me? But, you know, the idea is that you can kind of acknowledge the feeling, you know, this is really, I can see you're really upset, and it's this very, very difficult to talk about. And in a sense, you kind of talk, you know, you can feel the air in the consulting room kind of cool down a bit. You know, like, you know, if you think if you've had a really bad day at work and you come home and somebody starts talking about something and you're all riled up, really what you need to have somebody to say, from my point of view, and this is what Freud talks about, about the non-validation that the, the, he calls them criminals, that the criminal has had. If somebody can say, God, that, did that happen to you What just now? That sounds so difficult. You know, you know, you can see with little children, you know, tell a toddler who's having a, uh, you know, a meltdown, you're, you're naughty, stop it immediately. You know, I can see you're upset, and you want to sit down, should we talk about it? So the idea is that these emotions, which are, you know, ramping up, can be kind of brought down, not dismissed, not, you know, pull your socks up, but just explore. But you need to be a bit calmer. And the way to make people feel calmer is not to say, calm down, you know? I mean, you see people using this, this slaughter of infantile experience on the street. You know, with children who probably got a very legitimate complaint, they get smacked, I'll give you something to cry about, or, you know, you just, it's, you know, it's kind of a yoga thing, isn't it? It's kind of breathe, calm down. I mean, Peter Fonick is much better at this than I am, that's for sure. But the idea is that you can't access people when they're worked up. And the prison, the criminal justice system, not having contact with your children, your children being adopted, your, their 10th birthday, all that stuff, you are too emotional. It doesn't mean emotional is a bad thing, but you can't access the, the emotion as a kind of natural resource if people are all riled up. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you probably can relate that to your own experience of being you know, really upset, really furious. Somebody can say something nice to you or smile at you and just doesn't always work. But, but, but to try to acknowledge and contain, which is a very difficult word, often misused, it's a dynamic process. It doesn't mean you're putting a lid on it. But well, look, let's talk about it. You sound, you sound really upset. And then by using words to describe the emotion, the person has the vocabulary, the kind of paint Paint, paint brushes to uh, reflect upon their own experience when they're on their own. So it's an emotional, you know, English is an emotional experience. Language is a very helpful experience because once you have the words for it, then you have an inroad into being able to understand your own experience. And that really helps. Not being judged, not being told to shut up, not being told get behind your doors, but, well, you know, I don't know. And you don't want to be an omnipotent therapist. Oh, it's, it's because of this, it's because of Oedipus. But you just want to be, you know, people really want to be validated. Yes.
sorry, but I just want to say, yeah. it's very important mm -hmm. you are saying in the way also that when people go to become psychotherapists, please do not expect these mm. sort of patients especially to be nice to you mm. because they didn't need to discharge. They, I mean, they, you have to be able to offer the ability to contain them, mm -hmm. all their anger. After all, they are there because of their anger mm -hmm. and all mm -hmm. what has happened to them. They don't want to be nice to you. No, so right. actually, when a patient is angry with me, I used to be so happy. <laughs> you know, because really was really well to mm -hmm. Slap me in the door and say, you're a shit. Okay, mm -hmm. great. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yes, let's respect that. Because yeah. otherwise, you know, well, you really need to be up for being hated, don't you? You have to not mind being hated. You know, the hatred, the hatred. You know, why should why should anybody, you know, like a psychotherapist? You know, what? You know, you're in prison. You're in prison. You, it's on your sentence plan. It's not a popularity contest. But the idea is that we can think about this together. That's the idea. And sometimes you know, all the emotion is like you have to kind of you know, get through it first. But there, there are various ways of doing it. But I think the most effective thing is, is the strength of the therapy once the therapist can get really angry and you turn up the next week. You know, you come back. It's never going to be easy. Here I am. And you just you keep going. And that's an experience, not a lot of people in general have had, and certainly not in a forensic setting, in, in my experience. So does that make sense? And I think the thing about anger and rage is really important. Thanks for bringing that in, because it's not kind of like a little finishing school, isn't it, where everybody's so, oh, you know, unicorns, oh, glitter and happiness. But, but, the, but the point is, you know, that the, there is no bottom to suffering. You can keep sinking and suffering forever. But it's just different if you've got somebody alongside who's not afraid, you know, who just thinks this is pretty tricky. But if you really think that there can be meaning in pain, well, then you're kind of, you're kind of there, aren't you, week after week? But, you know, I do believe this, so maybe I'm deluded. <laughs> I sort of hate to feel a bit kind of <laughs> persecuted by the great man, but you know, we owe him a lot. I think um, going back to Holloway was built um, not really as a prison, so the units were very small, between 16 on a wing, 16 rooms on a wing, or up to 55 beds on a wing. Bronzefield mm. is like 180 on each house block. Um, so the personal approach that the mm. disciplined staff had in Holloway was much more community and family orientated. If you took the trouble to get to know your residents, that wasn't just a, a number and mm -hmm. Kelly Smith behind the door. If that prisoner and the staff took time to get to know the history and not just the number and the offense of why she was there, was part of building the relationship because then that um, resident would offload and divulge things to you. She might not have gone through the referral route through a court report or a mental mm -hmm. health report, and then it would trigger a discipline officer to get that lady an appointment in resettlement to be referred to an in-reach um, mm -hmm. yeah. service. Yeah. Yeah. 
and that was key yeah, to it. Yeah, that's right. In Bronzeville, Very a lot important. of it is go to the pod, book an appointment, I'm counting, I'm doing this, I'm ticking boxes. Lots of them, when I was there before Christmas, didn't even know the first names of the people on the unit, and I thought it was disgraceful, mm. to be honest. Yeah, it that's really like important. It was just like a factory. Yeah, and it comes down to the key to all of this is a relationship. Yeah and people being able to remember you and acknowledge acknowledge you. And with this churn, and you'll read it in the newspapers, these very short sentences, these children, only 5% of whom stay in the family home when the mother goes to prison. So there goes all the containment, the school, the neighbors, <coughs> the dog. You know, this, this churn, this tumbrel that rolls through our streets in these white vans decimates decimates families, and, it, and, it, and the process then repeats itself. And when people are being sent, sent to prison because they keep, keep shoplifting in boots to support their drug, drug problem, I mean, this achieves nothing, nothing good. Mm -hmm. Yes? Sorry, um, Kelly, what was it like for you to return to your family after you left prison and your children? I didn't return to my family. Um, which was the best thing I could have done because of my past. So I went to a place called Amber. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, it's a residential place for ex-offenders, um, people with drug and alcohol problems. They have three sites, um, and it was it, that was where I went and restarted my life. Kelly, can I ask you a question? Um, so I'm Judy, and yes. <laughs> as you know, but um, I just wanted to know a little bit more about this um, this this group mentalisation that you've developed, um, obviously in relationship to the work that you've done with Pamela. But whether you could say a little bit more about that, about, um, about the structure, or maybe what's different from other things that are already um, circulating, this group. Which you're, you guys are trying to kind of launch and get off the ground. Is oh, the Kelly group. The Kelly group. What's yes. What's Can you say a little bit about, about the Kelly group? How's it really? different from How? the other intra-therapeutic um, interventions? Well, for one, no offence to any psychiatrist or anyone, it's coming from someone that's been through it. Um, everything in that book, every single thing, is what I've wrote. My own experiences. I always feel that it's easier to talk to someone, knowing they've been through it as well, uh, better understanding. Um, and again, like I've said, there is nothing, nothing out there like this. There's no help there. Um, and I want to change that. And that's no disc discredit to anyone who does groups or anything. No, and it's very, it's, I think it's the sign of real learning when you can take an experience and then move it forward. And I think that's something that, that you really did take yeah. from the group. Just the experience of being with other people can change you for good or for ill. And there were some people who dropped out of the group, were very yeah. destructive. You know, it was, as you're saying, Estella, you know, there was slamming and rah, 
And that was allowed, and, but, but real meaning came out of it. And that's, um, that's something we're not going to give up on, it's the meaning. When I first came out of prison, I didn't have a very good experience. Um, oops, sorry. Um, I was referred to a mental health team in a certain part where I lived. Um, I had an assessment with them, and the woman I had the assessment with actually told me that I didn't have EUPD. Um, she was very rude. She then said about a coping skills programme, and it was like, you can do it, but you don't really need to do it. Um, so I went away from there feeling even worse. I was then referred to another place where I saw a mental health doctor each month, and I preferred that. Um, so yeah, it wasn't easy to carry on. And, you know, when I had that setback, it nearly made me just give up altogether. Do we have time for maybe one more? Is there another question before we finish for the evening? No one has a question. <coughs> <coughs> Sorry. Um, what are they doing in the, in the Netherlands that um, is making them so successful in dealing? That's a very good question. Questions. They're sending far fewer people to prison because they're more community programs. And even when they were sending mothers to prison, but they would let them go home at the weekends. Because women don't, as you, know, as you were saying, they're, they're, not, they're a small percentage of a, of a national prison population. Mm -hmm. And although women can be very violent, um, most of them aren't. And so there was a, a much deeper sense of um, maintaining family ties. And I would imagine, you know, you could you could just imagine that that probably creates fewer prisoners than the you know potential people. But it it is very interesting about how I you know I'm sure it's a very complicated question. It would have a lot to do with I would imagine with early intervention. Between 30 and 40 percent of children in this country live in poverty. 30 percent even take the low number. Um, so I think that that's where you really need to be looking. Early intervention with, you know, with pregnant women, where a lot of domestic violence can start. Perinatal care, this is the point of, of my mother and baby groups. A greater sense of the, um, you know, the, the, the baby as a person and not as Estella's written about, some kind of extension of the mother. But you know, there's, it, it's, prison's such a complicated institution and it says so much about society that it's quite hard to answer in you know in a, in a few minutes and I'm not trying to fob you off but the point is it is possible it doesn't have to be like this that's what's so frustrating and when we feel that we have something to contribute and it's rejected it makes it even harder to take really and I don't mean that in a grand way but um, you know I think to have the group run by somebody who's had the experience themselves 
and the members of the group don't feel like they're being talked down to by somebody they imagine has just read it in a book in some quiet library. You know, the direct physical experience of this is very, very hard to think about. And you need to be around somebody that really speaks with authority about it. And I think you'll agree that Carrie, uh, Kelly really, really does, Kelly. You do speak with the experience, and you speak um, in a way that really deserves to be heard. And I really appreciate that. Can I just say one word? Mm -hmm. No, that it's a sort of terrible uh, sense of uh, being completely taken by all these newspapers and all the terrible news in the newspapers. Sometimes patients who are doing extremely well, and then suddenly somebody got to know about the past for some some situation in the and then appears all in the papers and then immediately is completely disowned mm -hmm. by the family, by the neighbors, by everybody. The people are, of course, considering suicide, changing their names, so forth, everything. But I mean, it's so morbid. Music about people reading all this dreadful news in the newspapers mm -hmm. too. How these people, I mean, why? why? Some, sometimes in custody setting, I've, I've been a um, person officer for many, many, residents at Holloway that were high profile yeah. cases yeah. Um, and sometimes that client that comes into a custody setting, the sensationalised mm -hmm. exactly. statements that are in the paper actually gives that client notoriety and power within the prison system and they become very manipulative of staff, clients and outside services to a point where it's detrimental to other people on the wing and the safety of the actual environment. You know, many times you've had to transfer prisoners out overnight to another prison up north, eight o'clock in the morning, to protect that person and to protect the vulnerable people that the person associates with. So it can have, because Very people serious. remember the bad stories, they don't remember the good stories that do come out of prisons. And this young lady is one of them. Yes, I'm so sorry to cut the discussion short. <laughs> it's been fantastic having all of you here, but really, thank you so much to Pamela. Thank you so much to Kelly. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.